Lord, open my lips that my mouth may proclaim your praise. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Uh, Next Sunday will be the last Sunday in our Epiphany season. This is pretty much the shortest Epiphany season that the church can possibly have because Easter is so early. So uh, there's lots of opportunities for us in the lections to continue on this Epiphany season. Uh, But um, we'll be ending it next Sunday. And then uh, so a week from uh, Wednesday, we'll go into Ash Wednesday and into Lent. But we're still in this manifesting, this revealing, this epiphany season and so just kind of a roll back through from the beginning the feast of the epiphany is that day when we celebrate the magi who came from the east and who to whom by the star was revealed the infant Jesus who they proclaimed to be the king of the Jews it had been revealed to them manifested to them that they were searching the newborn king of the Jews. So that is one thing that has been manifested, revealed to us in these scriptures that have been chosen for this epiphany season. And then uh, we read of Jesus' baptism in the Jordan River and what is revealed there about Jesus is that Jesus is the Son of God. The voice of God came over him and a dove alighted on him as he came up from the waters of the Jordan after his baptism and the voice said, this is my son, the beloved, in whom I am well pleased. And then we have this, the scripture reading of the marriage feast in Cana of Galilee and John saying this is the first sign. And at the end of the book of John, he writes that all of the signs were so that we would know that Jesus is Messiah, the anointed one. Um, in Greek, the Christ, the Christos. So Messiah and Christ being the same word, uh, one in Hebrew, one in Greek. And that through him, you may have life in his name. And then last week, we saw the beginning of the story of Jesus in the synagogue in Nazareth in his own hometown. But we also read through Psalm 19. Psalm 19 is this wonderful psalm that starts off with this glorious experience exclamation of the creator God. The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament shows his handiwork. So the psalmist is saying that we know God as creator because all of the creation sings of his glory and his praise and his existence as the creator God. And then Psalm 19 moves from this general revelation of God in creation to the more specific revelation of God in his covenant law. That this is not just a God who creates and then departs from his creation, but he comes close to his creation in forming a covenant with his people. The first covenant, the old covenant in the law, and the law of the Lord shows forth the perfection of God. The law of the Lord is perfect, says the psalmist, and revives the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure and gives wisdom to the innocent. 
See, the covenant is made because creation, which was good, which was perfectly good, is no longer. It is sin-infested and it has fallen. But God still loves his creation. And so he forms this covenant, first of all with Abraham and then the people by the giving of the law. So that the law is the people's part of the covenant and God's part is that you will be my people. But there's a purpose for that election. There's a purpose for that calling. There's a so that. Because as early as the 12th chapter in Genesis, God says to Abraham, I'm going to set you apart as a nation. I'm going to make you the father of many, many people. So that through you, All the nations of the world will be blessed. There was always a purpose for Israel. They were to be that priesthood, a nation of priests, not the set-apart priests that were the sacrificing priests in the temple, but the entire people were to be a priesthood. And the understanding of that was that, that they would show forth the ways of God, they will be the mediators of God's ways, God's love, God's character, God's perfect justice and mercy to the world, to all of the nations of the world, and that they would then gather up all of the praises of the people and reflect those back up to God. They'd forgotten that that was the purpose of their election. They were set aside. The new covenant was always not only for Israel, but for the world. And we come to this reading, this gospel story. Jesus has uh, been baptized. He's been tempted in the wilderness. He's come back and he's had some kind of ministry in Capernaum where he had evidently set up a center for his ministry because word of what he has been doing in Capernaum has filtered back to his hometown of Nazareth to which he has now returned and he is in the synagogue. He's a good Jewish boy. He's gone to the synagogue and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah is given to him and he reads from that, from Isaiah 61. uh, This is the day. The Lord's favor has come today. He has come to set the captives free. And he sits down, which is the stance in that day for rabbis, teachers to teach. They sat to teach. We'd rather stand to teach. But in that day and age, he sat down. And he says, this scripture has been fulfilled today in your hearing. I am proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor. All of that which Israel looked forward to, the long-awaited Messiah who would bring freedom to captives, who would set Israel free from all that bound it under the boot of Rome, this scripture has today been fulfilled in your hearing. And we hear that as he expounded, as he opened up that scripture, they were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. We hear that over and over again in the gospel stories. People are amazed. Who is this man? He's just the carpenter's boy. He hasn't gone to rabbinic school. 
He's not a Pharisee. He's not a scribe. He's just an ordinary carpenter's son. And so they're amazed at the graciousness, at the grace which pours forth from his mouth as he expounds on God's word. But Jesus sees into the heart and sees what has happened. See, their expectation of a Messiah is a Messiah only for Israel. They've set up purity boundaries. They've closed themselves in. If we're going to follow the Old Testament, we're going to follow the law perfectly. We can only walk so many paces on the Sabbath day. And it constrained that group inward and inward so that Messiah was seen only to be a Messiah for Israel. And yet going back to Genesis, if they'd looked and if they'd remembered, they were a people with a purpose for other people in the world. And so Jesus sees what is going on in their hearts. And he is never afraid of confronting error or complacency. And he confronts their assumptions by making what initially seems rather obtuse references to prophets. He says, a prophet is not without honor except in their own home country. And you will surely say to me, a physician, heal yourself. And then he tells stories about great prophets of Israel, Elijah and Elisha. And the response that they have seems completely out of all reason for what he's just said. They're enraged. They want to kill him. What has he said? What has he said that makes them move from their amazed at the graciousness and the knowledge of how he has expanded to let's kill him? Well, we have to look at the two passages from the, from a, about Elijah and Elisha that he has chosen to highlight. See, he talks about the time of a three-year famine in Israel. And he says there were many widows in Israel at the time of the famine, but God sent the Jewish prophet Elijah to the widow of Zarephath in Sidon, Gentile country, a pagan, says there were widows in Israel, but God sent Elijah to a Gentile pagan, to that widow. And then he says, and there were many who suffered from leprosy in Israel, but God sent Elisha, or an, a Naaman, a Syrian soldier, a soldier from Syria. That's a country we hear a lot about these days. A soldier in Syria is, comes to Israel because he has leprosy. And he comes to Elisha, and Elisha goes and tells him to bathe in the Jordan, and God heals a Syrian soldier, a Gentile, a pagan. And, of course, they're all furious with Jesus because he's just said, Messiah is not just coming for you. Redemption is not just coming to your house. 
Messiah has come to represent Israel and to be and to fulfill the purpose for which Israel was set apart in the first place to bring all nations to redemption, to bring grace to all the nations of the world. And they don't want to hear it. And they try and kill him, but it's not his time. And he walks through the midst of them. Messiah, those, the passage of Isaiah had in actual fact, has been fulfilled in their hearing. But the Messiah doesn't look like what they expect Messiah to look like. He'd come not just for Israel, but to bring healing, to bring new creation, to bring new covenant for all the world, for all people, because God is not the God of vengeance, but of mercy and of love. The kind of love Paul is talking about in his letter to the Corinthians. Um, I've done a few weddings and, and a few funerals, and this is a passage that's kind of taken out of its context and plopped within those contexts, and, and it's good for that time. I don't have time to go normally in those situations and, and, and give the fuller context, but, but this passage needs to be contextualized. You see, remember last week maybe that uh, we were talking about, Paul was talking to the Corinthians about spiritual gifts. Remember what's happened in Corinth. They're arguing with each other. This is not a happy community. They are at each other's throats. And uh, the foundation of it is pride, spiritual pride. Well, I can speak in tongues. You can't. Well, evidently, you're not a very spiritual person then. You see, what happens is, is that um, the, they have been given these spiritual gifts, but no one person has all of the gifts. The gifts are distributed amongst the body of Christ for the building up of the whole body. And he says, yes, gifts are good. They're gifts of the Holy Spirit. They're given for the building up of the body. But if they're not founded in love, they're useless. They're not worth a hill of beans. Nothing is worth anything unless it's founded in love. And not the kind of love that we think about. Of course, because this passage is, is taken uh, for a wedding service, it's, it's largely thought to be about romantic love. But this is, this is an example of divine love. In fact, all of the foundation of all of the stories that we have been hearing through this epiphany season as the, as the character of Jesus, as the character of God as revealed in Jesus Christ comes to full flower, the foundation of that character is love. So if we read this passage, 1 Corinthians 13, this so well-known passage, and instead of saying love, put God there. God, who is love, is patient. He is patient with us. Eternally patient with us. In all of the ways that we go off the path. 
He is patient. God is kind. He is not envious. He is not boastful. He is not arrogant. And he is not rude. He does not insist on his own way. You see, he's given us free will. God could coerce us to do anything. But would that be love? Love coerced is not love. He doesn't need us. He did not need to create us. He wanted to. He does not need our love. But he wants our love. There is nothing that God needs because within the Trinity there is self-sufficiency. But he created us in love. For love. Because he loves us so very much. To coerce love is not love. So he gives us our freedom. And he gives us a passage in Romans that I think is one of the saddest passages in all of Scripture. It's when Paul says, God left them to follow the desires of their own heart instead of following him. Because his love is all-sufficient. His ways bring complete wholeness. His ways bring life. Our ways lead us to destruction. But he will not coerce us. He gives us free will to go on our way. But he calls always after us. Because even when we go our own way, he doesn't get resentful. He doesn't get impatient with us. He doesn't get irritable or resentful about those crazy decisions that we make. He just comes after us in love. God is love. God bears all things, endures all things because of love. Indeed, we see Jesus bore all our sins on the cross. Look at the cross. My word of gossip is nailed to him. My word of anger is nailed to him. Any of your sins are nailed right there and he endures all because of love. Love has redemption, not ruination or punishment as its goal. It always looks and seeks for the better of his beloved creation. Micah puts it this way, Who is a God like thee, pardoning iniquity and passing over transgressions? He does not retain his anger forever because he delights in steadfast love. The Hebrew there is a word called chesed. 
I've always thought that's, that's got that steadfast love. Sometimes when we use English, we're used to the terminology and, and love is such an overworked term. But chesed, the steadfast love of the Lord, never fails. And Jesus bore all things for us, endured all things for us because of love. He created in love. He set up a new covenant because of love. He came in person because he wants a personal relationship with us to bring in new creation so that death works backwards for us. A new covenant in his blood so that we are covered once and for all redeemed, brought into a perfect relationship. And this is to be the life of the Christian. The life of the church is supremely a life of love. It's a life given over to revealing God's love as manifested in Christ. We're to love because we belong to a loving God who is love. We're to love as he loves. A love that is so radically transcendent above all human ideas or expressions of love. We confused toleration and love. We've confused lust and love. We've confused love in so many ways. Go back and see how God loves. Divine love is so very different. And we are to be that people who love as God loves. And sometimes it's tough love. Remember, God sent Israel into exile because he loved them, not to punish them because they turned away from him. And in turning away, they were marching to their own destruction. And so in exile, they turn back to him. And they come back to the God who loves. This kind of love is a love who is for those who look different from us. We're not about to close off the doors and barricade ourselves in behind purity boundaries. Remember the Syrian soldier, Naaman. Remember the widow of Zarephath. They didn't look like the Jews thought they should look. Who looks different than we do? To whom we are called to give our love, to reveal Christ's love in the world, the love that is ultimately self-sacrificial like Jesus' own. I've been rereading through these last few weeks uh, Julian of Norwich. He's an English mystic who lived in the 1300s, 1400s, the time when the bubonic plague wiped out um, millions of people, half um, if not more of entire communities. She lived in East Anglia, uh, just not far from actually where my mom and dad retired to. I went to her anchorage one time. Um, she received in her 30s, in her early 30s, uh, the last rite. She probably had the bubonic plague. We don't know that. 
Um, so the, the priest was brought in to give her last rites, and she received 16 revelations of the love of God. And uh, she wrote, wrote those down pretty much very quickly after she recovered. She's the first woman who ever wrote in the English language. And then over the years, God revealed to her more and more levels of these revelations that she received. And she writes this, And for the time that this was shown, I often longed to know what our Lord meant. And 15 years and more later, my spiritual understanding received an answer, which was this. Do you know, do you want to know what your Lord meant? Know well that love was what he meant. Who showed you this? Love. What did he show? Love. Why did he show it to you? For love. Hold fast to this, and you will know and understand more of the same. But you will never understand or know from it anything else for all eternity. This is how I was taught that our Lord's meaning was love. And I saw quite certainly in this and in everything that God loved us before he made us. And his love has never diminished and never shall. It's, it's good to remember on this annual parish meeting weekend. Several years ago, your vestry gathered together for a retreat and we were we were looking at the identity of the Church of the Good Shepherd and could we kind of synopsize what, what the mission was, what, what Good Shepherd was about. And there were people who had been here for a while and there were people who were new to the congregation. And we came up with the fact that Church of the Good Shepherd exists to reveal Christ's love. That's why we're here. We're here to reveal Christ's love in the multitude of ways that it is revealed to us. For those within the sheepfold, within the community, pastoral care, spiritual care, love for each other. And love for those who are not yet in the sheepfold, who are right now in darkness. Because the Good Shepherd goes with his crook and finds the lost. And so we're to reveal Christ's love into the world, to bring them in so that they can be cared for and loved here. This last week, I'll close with this, this last week um, we had a supper for the full sale uh, young adults who'd come out uh, to help with the live nativity. This is the second year we've done this, and this is a, a wonderful time to get together and to celebrate them and to really give thanks for the time that they'd given uh, to do that, to out of their day. They weren't uh, remunerated for that financially, um, but they spent a lot of time on here. So um, people who had been on the committee uh, brought food, and, um, and we sat at tables and got to know them a little bit more. And then instead of asking them to introduce themselves, um, we would introduce them and say a little bit about what we had learned from them in the conversations. 
and there was young, one young lady who uh, needed to leave early. She actually had an online test to do, I think. And Bobby came to me that weekend afterwards and said, do you know what she said? She said, I have never felt so loved. We're to reveal God's love, not the world's love, not the shadow of the love. We're to reveal God's love because he dwells in us. Amen.